Welcome to the Highway High Vibe Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And congratulations, you have found the internet's finest podcast about music that does blow with vermin. This episode is going to be the final episode in our series on Desert Island Recordings, or those albums that were made in isolation. And this one's going to be a longer one. We're actually going to include multiple artists creating works in maybe the worst places ever, unfortunately. All right, so are you ready to get started? I'm ready. Everybody's talking at me I don't hear a word they're saying Only the echoes of my mind Poet laureate Elizabeth Bishop made regular dutiful visits to Ezra Pound during his 12-year stay at the government-run St. Elizabeth Psychiatric Hospital. Pilgrimages to this mythic giant of modernist writing seem to be almost expected of any poet of acclaim, as Pound was visited by the likes of Robert Lowell, John Berryman, E.E. Cummings, T.S. Eliot, Marianne Moore, Charles Olson, William Carlos Williams, and Allen Ginsberg during his time at the D.C. facility. Much like the somber parade of devotees paying respects to Woody Guthrie as he lay dying in New York City. Pound was incarcerated at St. Elizabeth's in 1945, as an alternative to life imprisonment for a conviction of treason as a pro-fascist, anti-Semitic broadcaster in Italy. Though many have questioned the severity of his mental afflictions, Pound became a caricature of insanity during his decade-long stint in what he called the Bug House, as he would sit in the gardens, wearing sandals and open shirts, feeding peanuts to squirrels. He could talk sensibly and powerfully about writing, and then babble near incoherently about the evils of the Jewish people. Bishop expressed deeply conflicted feelings about her time with the revered poet. To see an undeniable genius locked up among demented, hysterical, and forgotten folks, and dehumanized to an unrecognizable stature, she turned to her craft to explore and manage this confusion. Her poem, A Visit to St. Elizabeth's, is a lament for the fallen hero, a curious case study of brokenness, and a prayer against her own fears of following in his footsteps. The poem is structured as a nursery rhyme, which both adds an air of ambivalence to her subject and furthers the unsettling sense of lunacy that permeated her visitations and her host. This is the house of Bedlam. This is the man that lies in the house of Bedlam. This is the time of the tragic man that lies in the house of Bedlam. This is a wristwatch telling the time of the talkative man that lies in the house of Bedlam. This is a sailor wearing the watch that tells the time of the honored man that lies in the house of Bedlam. This is the roadstead all of board reached by the sailor wearing the watch that tells the time of the old brave man that lies in the house of Bedlam. These are the years and the walls of the ward. The winds and the clouds of the sea of board sailed by the sailor wearing the watch that tells the time of the cranky man that lies in the house of Bedlam. 
This is a Jew in a newspaper hat that dances weeping down the ward, over the creaking sea of board, beyond the sailor winding his watch that tells the time of the cruel man that lies in the house of Bedlam. This is a world of books gone flat. This is a Jew in a newspaper hat that dances weeping down the ward, over the creaking sea of board, of the batty sailor that winds his watch that tells the time of the busy man that lies in the house of Bedlam. This is a boy that pats the floor to see if the world is there is flat for the widowed Jew in the newspaper hat that dances weeping down the ward, waltzing the length of a weaving board by the silent sailor that hears his watch that ticks the time of the tedious man that lies in the house of Bedlam. These are the years and the walls and the door that shut on a boy that pats the floor to feel if the world is there and flat. This is a Jew in a newspaper hat that dances joyfully down the ward into the parting seas of board, past the staring sailor that shakes his watch that tells the time of the poet, the man, that lies in the house of Bedlam. This is the sailor home from the war. These are the years and the walls and the door that shut on the boy that pats the floor to see if the world is round or flat. This is a Jew in a newspaper hat that dances carefully down the ward, walking the plank of a coffin board, with a crazy sailor that shows his watch that tells the time of the wretched man that lies in the house of Bedlam. There is an unproductive trope of there being a fine line between genius and madman. We are encouraged to believe that the works of artist in an asylum are somehow this perpetual motion machine where mental illness fuels creativity, which in turn fractures the creator even more creating a cycle toward an inevitable dark end where we are left only with the work to scrutinize or admire. The truth is a lot less dramatic, but no less sad. Social circumstances, interpersonal relationships, biology, substances, and societal expectations each play relevant roles in determining the well-being of every person, artist, genius, or just the poorest soul sleeping on the street in a newspaper hat. Art and artist are separate, just as mental condition and person are separate. Influenced and interlaced certainly, but we so often forget that works do not define the person, rather the person defines the work. Just as Elizabeth Bishop was fascinated, afraid, and even somewhat removed from such a prominent and important writer as Ezra Pound while in that controlled environment, so are we totally captivated by the albums that were created while the artists were in mental hospitals. They are rare artifacts that unfortunately end up defining the artist for their careers, while giving an undue amount of weight to the condition of their mind rather than the beauty within it. The artistry that comes from the pain and confusion of confinement in a hospital and in one's mind. These records are a snapshot of musicians on the brink that utilize songs to communicate their struggle or alleviate suffering. Today, we are exploring institutional albums. Last. And it's gonna last. 
By the start of 1969, the 13th floor elevators were all but over, despite one more album being released by the group that first used the word psychedelic to describe their music. The band had fallen apart over the past year or so, and its most infamous member, Rocky Erickson, found himself using too much speed and smoking too much pot. At one point, he was spotted wandering along the streets of Houston, barefoot, with a broken syringe full of speed sticking out of his shirt pocket. He was just looking for someone who could inject him. One evening in Austin, Evelyn Erickson and her son Rocky showed up at the house of a friend where a small party was going on. Evelyn wanted to leave after a little while, and a 21-year-old University of Texas freshman named Stephen Kennedy told Mrs. Erickson he'd bring Rocky home later on. When it was time to go, the two got into Stephen's little foreign car and started heading to Rocky's mom's house. Along the way, they noticed a patrol car following them. Now, Rocky and the elevators had gotten in trouble with the police a few times with a few scares of potential incarceration, which would lead to hard labor for sure. These run-ins had left an adult Erickson incredibly paranoid and just plain scared of police. He panicked. Rocky rolled down the passenger side window and threw a vial of marijuana as far as he could. This action did not go unnoticed, and they were pulled over immediately. In the police report from that night, the patrolman claims to have found the vial of marijuana right away, and that he'd only been following them because Kennedy's car wasn't American-made. Had the vial not been launched out of the window, they probably wouldn't have been stopped, and Erickson's life might have turned out very different. Kennedy and Erickson were taken to the jail where they were assaulted by an inmate, with Rocky getting headbutted and Stephen getting punched in the face. Should always buy American. A few months earlier, and just over 1,500 miles from Austin in New York City, a pajama-clad man who thought he was the Antichrist hailed down a cab on 11th and University by waving a red fire axe over his head. And somewhat surprisingly, an unfazed cabbie stopped and picked up the wild-eyed axe-wielding burnout. With a partially shaved-off beard and a bad case of the sweats, the fare was barely intelligible but managed to utter, CBS building. And so the car sputtered off to take Skip Spence to murder his bandmate. Hours, or maybe it was days earlier, Spence had taken a hallucinogenic called Blue Cheer, that the band was named after, which was a pill that combined LSD and methadrine, created to ensure trips were both protracted and projective. While in New York to record the newest Moby Grape record, he had shacked up with a self-proclaimed white witch groupie named Joanna, who consistently fed drugs during black magic rituals to the already unstable rocker in a Greenwich Village hovel. He would disappear from recording sessions for days at a time, reappearing randomly and in irregular states of coherence. The steady diet of bad acid finally caused a snap in Spence, and delusions flooded his brain. He believed himself Satan, and his band's drummer, Don Stevenson, possessed in the need of an exorcism by Chopin. He made his way to the Albert Hotel where the grape had been staying and held the axe to a doorman's head, who wisely let him pass. With Jack Nicholson-like rage, he hacked apart Stevenson's door and found the room totally empty. He screamed at no one in particular his intention to find Stevenson at the studio. 
bandmates holed up in a different hotel room called their producer, David Robinson, at the studio to give him a heads up about, you know, the axe-murdering guy coming at him. (laughs) Skip made it all the way to the 52nd floor of the CBS building, as apparently tripping, weapon-toting madmen were a fairly common occurrence in New York in 1968. Robinson was ready and waiting and convinced Spence to lower his axe long enough for him to get tackled by security. He was arrested and given a simple choice. Jail or Bellevue. Alexander Skip Spence was one of the most magnetic personalities of the San Francisco hippie era, and one of the most talented as well, though addiction and mental illness constantly limited his output. What he was able to accomplish was staggering, and a significantly fuller vision of the psychedelic scene than most of his flower-in-their-hair, soap-averse counterparts. Born in Canada, Spence's family moved to California, His dad was a World War II bomber who also played piano and sang in clubs all along Route 66. Skippy was a freewheeling guy from the start and began playing in whatever bands he could to get out of his home. Eventually, he had a position in an early iteration of the Quicksilver Messenger Service, but was poached by Marty Balin to be the drummer for the as-of-yet-grounded Jefferson Airplane. Spence hadn't ever played drums, but... Balin wanted the sun-kissed golden boy in his band. It took him about a week to become a competent rock drummer. In contrast, Ringo has taken 80 years to manage the same feat, and he still can't play any of the songs on the White Album. Skip was still allowed to contribute songs to Jefferson Airplane's repertoire. He played on the first record, Takes Off, but was promptly sacked by Balin after foregoing a gig to abscond to Mexico with a pair of tender young senoritas. There have been some who hinted at the possibility that old Marty McFly didn't like the songwriting competition that Skippy brought into the group. He wasn't that graceful, nor slick. Wah, wah. <laughs> then Spence turned out an offer to drum in Buffalo Springfield because he wanted to play guitar, and probably because he was afraid of playing with toy trains and eating pork with Neil Young and his new bosom buddy, Charlie Manson. And that shit will make you crazy. Instead, he formed Moby Grape, which really has a good case for putting out the best debut of the scene. The band's intensity and talent unleashed a three-guitar attack and vocal harmonies that could produce glistening cosmic country, barn-burning garage rock, groove-tastic R&B, and delicate introspective folk. It was the most balanced and focused record of the era. Ernest Hemingway to the Grateful Dead's Jack Kerouac the bloated Kerouac living in his mom's basement. Moby Grape debut did really well, hitting 24 on the charts, but Columbia oversold them, stunting their natural development, as they released five simultaneous singles, which left perplexed radio DJs unsure what to play. They also had a ridiculously extravagant album release party at the Avalon Ballroom, complete with orchid-laden walkways and bottles of Moby Grape wine, made from real Moby Grapes. Attracted to the extravagance. (laughs) 
the police showed up and made a show of arresting some of the band members under the suspicion of drugs. Ironically, that was one of the few times that the band wasn't carrying, so they were released but had already established themselves a reputation as a problem band. It didn't help that they were mismatched on a tour with the Mamas and Papas, who, along with their crowds, didn't care for the extreme volumes and the general unruliness of the grape. Their career was mostly damaged by horrible record deals, which messed up publishing rights and even lost them the control of the band name. They would never recover from these early missteps, but in a vain attempt to right the ship, the band decided to go to New York to hammer out their next record, thinking NYC would be perfect as a haven away from the drugs, drama, legal issues, and craziness. Whoops. In 1966, an album called The Psychedelic Sounds of the 13th Floor Elevators was released to very little fanfare. Since then, it has become one of the most revered and imitated albums of all time. The band featured a lyricist who played an electric jug, a guitar player who hammered garage band riffs, and a singer with a howl like no other. The elevators weren't especially popular in Texas, with rednecks terrorizing them and threatening to pummel them and cut their hair off, and police who targeted them and tried to send them to Huntsville Prison for years over small amounts of pot. The band fled Texas and landed in San Francisco, where they shared stages with Moby Grape, Big Brother and the Holding Company, and Quicksilver Messenger Service. They fit in well, having a sound that couldn't be replicated. Eventually, because of acid, pot, and booze troubles, they moved back to Texas after not succeeding in California. The band fell apart, with lead singer Rocky Erickson succumbing to mental issues exacerbated by acid speed and the reefer. It was lyricist Tommy Hall who may have had the most adverse effect on Erickson's demise, forcing each member of the band to drop acid every time they practiced or played live. The band split up, before their third and final album, Bull of the Woods, was even released, with Erickson being locked up in the Rusk State Hospital. Rusk, Texas, is a dusty, worthless town, 30 miles from the next closest dusty, worthless town. Its current attractions include the longest footbridge in the nation, one of the longest zip lines in Texas, three campgrounds all designed with your family in mind. And for those history buffs out there, 32 historical markers of some sort. Its most famous resident, who wasn't required to be there by order of a judge, was Johnny Horton. Set your cruise control for Rusk for the perfect family weekend, says their Chamber of Commerce. Established in 1846, Rusk only started being recognizable in 1877 when a penitentiary was built to house overflow from Huntsville Prison, the biggest, most horrible prison in Texas. For a few years, Rusk had a profitable iron foundry with unpaid, forced laborers. If you'd like to see some of their work, visit the Capitol Building in Austin. Between 1885 and 1887, Rusk prisoners manufactured virtually all of the interior cast-iron features in the Capitol, including the columns and connecting ornamental iron and probably the stairs and balusters. Iron manufacturing lost its profitability by 1910, and the penitentiary was closed in 1917. In less than 12 months, however, it was reopened as a hospital for the care of, quote, 
Negro Insane. In 1919, Open Arms welcomed alleged mentally unstable people of all races. Texas was so progressive with integration. In 1919, it housed 600 people. By 1946, the population was over 2,400 inmates. And by 1967, Rusk Hospital had an additional facility to house the criminally insane. This is the hospital that Rocky Erickson called home for three and a half nightmarish years. For most people, the name Bellevue means one of two things. In TV crime dramas, it is the mental hospital of New York City. And it's also the city in Nebraska where Joe's from. The name conjures images of palatial and brooding structures containing untold horrors and atrocities involving the poor souls who dare not be integrated back into society. And that's the city I'm from. (laughs) (laughs) And while Bellevue's history, just as the entirety of what passed for mental health in the past, is shockingly barbaric and terrifying... The hospital also represents a genuine attempt to provide treatment for all people, no matter their lot in life. The first public hospital in the USA evolved from an almshouse after New York City bought a farm near the East River to have a place to house its sick residents. The hospital has for nearly three centuries been open to battle plagues, make incredible medical breakthroughs, and serve even the most unfortunate and destitute of all of us. And for all the good, you can't deny the darkness that dwelled down its tiled halls. There are tales of pre-anesthesia surgeries, the Frankenstein-esque experimentation, the infestation of rats who fed on the weak and the comatose, the packed morgue, the evil doctors, and the on-site execution grounds. However, nothing resides in our collective night terrors more than Bellevue's notorious psych ward. Opened in 1876 as a pavilion for the insane, this facility was where New York City's so-called deranged and demented were locked up safely away from the general public. Horrific images of padded rooms, screaming lunatics on gurneys, electroshock therapy were all very real and very common occurrences on the unit. Not a fun place. Over time, Bellevue became a dumping ground for cops to throw the nightly paddy wagon halls of the criminally insane, which is how Skip Spence ended up in the ward after his acid-induced meltdown. Skippy was by no means the only person of note to spend time in Bellevue, which has been described as the Chelsea Hotel of the Mad. A who's who of American writers clinically convalesced there, including Sylvia Plath, Eugene O'Neill, William Burroughs, and Allen Ginsberg who must have enjoyed his time visiting Pound in St. Elizabeth's. As did the English writer Malcolm Lowry, who wrote one of the finest and most disorienting novelizations of Descent into Alcoholic Hopelessness. Post-wife-stabbing Norman Mailer and post-wife-stabbing Sid Vicious both did time there. Probably didn't share a room. (laughs) Charlie Parker and Edie Sedgwick both had severe breakdowns and were admitted And also, notable J.D. Salinger fan club president, Mark David Chapman, took up residency after, well, you know. On the whole, there were a lot more of the killer type than the creative sorts who had sadly lost their marbles. Again, not a nice place. 
As a bit of an excursion, there is a pretty crazy tale of how Charles Mingus checked himself into Bellevue. In his biography, he explains that he hadn't slept for three weeks and was just aimlessly walking the streets of New York when he happened upon the gates of Bellevue and couldn't stop himself from asking to be let in. The sentry attempted to dissuade him, explaining this was no place to get rest. But Mingus insisted, and when in, was quickly put into a straitjacket and went from voluntary to involuntary when they saw the holes in his arm and didn't believe his story that they were track marks from efforts to reduce fatty tumors. Nice try. He goes on to regale his readers with the racist drillings of a German psychoanalyst that he called Herr Doktor, or how he found a long-lost painting of an axe and an apple by Thelonious Monk, who was also admitted in 1957. And finally, how he played some chess with a sullen kid who spent his time in the nuthouse reading math books. The kid, who checkmated him three times and quickly got bored with playing the angry man of jazz, was implied to be Bobby Fischer. This is probably bullshit, but Mingus taught his cat to flush the toilet, so anything's possible. Barely teach myself to flush the toilet. Shortly after being discharged from his two-week vacay at The View, Mingus recorded what I would argue is the best sound to ever be committed to wax, Black Saint and the Sinner Lady. The album's liner notes were partially written by his psychoanalyst. He also recorded this track about his voluntary-involuntary confinement called Lock Em Up, Hellview at Bellevue. Back to Spence, who didn't famously lose at board games during his stint, but rather spent most of his time completely cut off from reality and doped up on Thorazine. Diagnosed with schizophrenia, he existed in his own plane, shuffling back and forth down the halls. Somehow, in a strange twist, this time being away from the pressures of the outside world, freed Spence to enter a space where he was riding with an unbridled passion. He began stockpiling songs in his head. Though his mind was hazy and he was deprived of a guitar while incarcerated, he also found that he had something to say, and more importantly, found an unencumbered voice to sing it. After six months, he was released with nothing but the pale blue hospital clothes on his back. David Robinson, the producer he had tried to cleave just six months earlier, picked him up at the front gate. Spence immediately told him that he had had these songs burned in his head and he needed to record them before they were gone. Robinson knew the talent and possibility that existed in this semi-broken icon and took a chance. After he got him cleaned up and fed, he got a small advance from Columbia for Skippy to record a new album in Nashville the very next day. The advance quickly was exchanged for a Harley and Spence sped off, starting the 900-mile journey south. Legend has it that he was still in his pale blue hospital pajamas. That's not accurate, but who are we to invalidate good apocrypha? When Rocky and Kennedy were jailed, Rocky couldn't make bail and had to wait in jail for his trial where he also couldn't afford a lawyer. 
The state provided one for him, and he talked Rocky into an insanity plea so he could avoid doing time at Huntsville. He was up for 10 years. This ended up being one of the defining decisions of Erickson's life. He was seen by a few doctors who debated on his well-being, but most agreed that he had some form of schizophrenia. The real question was if he was a danger to others or not. He was placed in a minimum security psychiatric hospital in Austin, from which he wandered away multiple times. Usually, family and friends would walk him back. International artists, the label that had signed the 13th floor elevators, was hoping that Erickson would become a solo record maker for them, and when he wandered away from the hospital one time, they took him on tour around the country, trying to promote him and planning on him making a few albums for them. The tour was going well, despite Erickson being a fugitive. His management didn't have any problems booking him anywhere but Texas. During the tour, Rocky was contacted by a friend in Austin who wanted him to play a show there. Rocky was thrilled to be asked and excited to go back and see his friends and play a show. His management team emphatically said that it was a terrible idea. If he went back to Texas, he'd be locked up for sure. Rocky went back to Texas. The show in Austin went off without a hitch, and by all accounts, it was fantastic, and Rocky felt like a star returning home. After the show, a man approached Rocky and started chatting him up, saying that he'd been friends with Rocky's dad. They kept talking and telling stories, and eventually the guy said, Hey, you know what? I think I have something with me that you might really like. It was something of your dad's. It's, it's in my car. Follow me, and, and I'll grab it for you. Rocky followed him out the back exit into the parking lot, where there waited several armed Texas troopers with guns pointed at Rocky. He was arrested as a fugitive and placed into Rusk, where he'd have no chance of wandering off. Kennedy, by the way, had his charges dropped. His family had important connections in Texas, and he walked away with nothing more than that punch in the face. At Rusk, Erickson was placed on a steady diet of electroshock therapy, Thorazine, and, and speed, which he loved. <laughs> he would find ways to save the speed so he could take several days worth at once. Then he'd stay up all night writing songs. Many of the songs he wrote, which he claimed to be over 300, were released in a book called Openers, with his nom de plume being Reverend Roger Rocky Kennard Erickson. The book had to be smuggled out of Rusk and was published in 1972. Most of those songs were never recorded, though some were, and released on an album called Never Say Goodbye, which collected home recordings made between 71 and 75. There's no screaming on these songs. There's no howl. It's all rather subdued and lovely. Take, for example, the song I Love the Living You, featuring one of my all-time favorite lines of any song ever. You flatter everything that's good. It's a shame that that Never Say Goodbye hasn't been released on vinyl. There's some fantastic songs on there, even if the the quality, the you know, the sonic quality is just tape recordings. I mean, since he was in a mental hospital, but 
Some of those songs are among my favorites he ever did. These songs were recorded mostly after he got out on a tape deck or a tape recorder in his mom's house, mm-hmm. mostly. They remind me of early Mountain Goat songs, and John Darnell of the Mountain Goats wrote those liner notes for that album. Oh, really? Yeah. That's right. Erickson was asked to lead a band while at Rusk. At first, he had no interest. He wasn't sure whether he'd ever play music again, but he finally relented. The other band members were at Rusk for charges a little more morally abhorrent than Rocky. The lead guitarist, Jimmy Wolcott, killed his parents and sister after a glue-sniffing bender. Not to be outdone, the bassist, Charlie Heffley, stabbed the daughter of a cop and tossed both of her young children into a river to drown. A blind tambourine player, whose name doesn't seem to be known, had taken part in a gang-raping and murder of a 12-year-old boy. And finally, on drums, Ringo! And finally, on drums, a guy who (laughs) killed a county clerk after receiving a ticket for parking in a tow zone that he insisted wasn't a tow zone. The band was called The Missing Links, and they had permission to practice once a week for a few hours. They also played concerts outside of Rusk, which is incredible, always being escorted by armed guards. Well, one guy from the prison who was a guard, and another guy who was a janitor. Their shows were mostly a mix of Rolling Stones covers and Erickson originals. They played a rodeo, a summer festival, a senior prom, and appeared on TV at least three times. You couldn't put together a worse group of people if you... Rocky Erickson is freaking Mother Teresa compared to the rest of them. It was a hospital for the criminally insane. All of these people were... People were murderers and rapists, and he was busted for a tiny little vial of pot. Many of Rocky's Rusk songs were religious, but he ended up changing references from God to monster movie characters. Rocky was obsessed with monster movies, as evidenced by so many of his song titles, some of which being Night of the Vampire, I'm a Demon, The Beast, I Walked with a Zombie, Creature with the Atom Brain, and If You Have Ghosts. When Rocky was released in 1972, he narrowed his songs down from 300 to 15 and recorded the album The Evil One, produced by Credence Clearwater Revival's Stu Cook by way of Doug Somm. The first single he released after Rusk was called Red Temple Prayer, Two-Headed Dog, and that was funded and produced by Doug Somm. Rocky's infamous scream is back, though the song is more Black Sabbath than 13th Floor Elevators. The B-Side was a poppy love song called Starry Eyes that was influenced by one of Rocky's Texas heroes, Buddy Holly.
an EP called Mine, Mine, Mind, was also written at Rusk. Unlike Never Say Goodbye, this song has a full band and more snarl, but it also has an infectious chorus and mentions of demons, devils, and seances. The Evil One album closes out with a song called If You Have Ghosts. And that song seems to be about horror movies, the Rusk Hospital, and Erickson's struggle with schizophrenia. It's haunting and beautiful and slightly goofy. Much like Erickson's songs were composed in the mental hospital, or was allegedly fully written in Spence's mind while he was at Bellevue, so it was just a simple matter of transcribing the sounds in Spence's head onto tape. Of course, this is a simplification of what may have been. When a man diagnosed with schizophrenia fresh out of one of the world's most horrible places is given a tabula rasa to make a record. It took six days for Skip to record nearly 30 songs. Robinson wanted this to be our peer process, so he stayed away from the studio and limited all distractions by instructing the very patient recording engineer, Mike Figlio, to just keep the tapes recording. Originally intended to be demos, Spence recorded all the instruments by himself on a three-track recorder. He did the arrangement and the production alone. The sparseness and pain in the performance are palpable. Or is inarguably a record that sounds nothing like any major label release before or since. Spence's voice sounds a hundred years old, with the last couple decades interned in a crypt. Occasionally mumbling as if the effects of the antipsychotic meds still numbed his nervous system. The lo-fi songs are claustrophobic, but with a depth that harkens to dark places men can go in their mind when their body is confined. It's like listening to an album made by somebody suffering sleep paralysis. There's a string of classic folk blues that would completely unravel if anyone were brave enough to pull on it. Shambling is too energetic a description of how the songs crawl out of this record. Even the sparse psychedelic elements seem more a product of a monochromatic nightmare rather than a typical technicolored daydream of the era. Reverberations echo down grimy tiled halls rather than spacious laurel canyons. The fuzz is a product of a parasitic rot on atrophied guitar strings. Freeform moments are the results of hands that are failing to grasp onto solid matter rather than some planned communal consciousness expansion. As raccoon-shaped Wilco frontman Jeff Tweedy puts it, It was a revelation to hear a record that disjointed and free, to hear something that liberated, that it can have traditional elements yet at the same time destroy any concept of it being nostalgic.
For coming from such a place of confusion, Spence's themes were clear. Fighting off demons, finding saints, making sense of a purposeless world, and getting laid. Bleakness softened with humor, which makes the record very listenable in spite of itself. The record starts with Little Hands, which, in another universe, fully fleshed out, could have been a hit with its gorgeous melody and infectious neo-nuclear nursery rhyme lyrics. As it is, there is an acid folk spaciness and a sinister slicing sound that is the perfect invitation into this visionary void. as chain gang chanting weighed down the prison song is an utterly convincing interpretation of a Delta bluesman trapped in his own mind. It also reads as a fruitless apology to the world that had long turned its back on its own lost son. Weighed down by possessions Weighed down by War and Peace is on the schizophrenic, surrealistic spectrum of the album. Fragmented, the song is like the echoes for which there never was an originating sound the answer to a question that's never been asked. At one point, Spence mockingly adds a 45 played at 33 version of the Sunshine of Your Love riff, scoffing at the betrayed peace and love values of the late 60s. Sugar track, Lawrence of Euphoria, is such a random departure from the raw nature of the rest of the album, it's almost dizzying. Sid Barrett-esque pitter-patter lyrics into a goofball-odd charm of a man who clearly had the opposite sex on his mind whilst locked up. It's strangely fun and funly strange. And Lawrence from Euphoria, I'll share your tent. The final track on the original release was the nine-minute psych-epic Grey Afro, which has an amazing interplay of drums and guitars that almost seem to be mimicking each other with the heavily phased vocals floating in and out of the mix. The song never fully de-evolves into a full-on freakout, Rather, it is tantalizing, leaving you worried that it all could turn on itself, much like Spence himself. (laughs) 
once Skip was finished with the record, he sent the tapes to Robinson and rode his Harley back to San Jose to reconnect with his wife and family and pick up the pieces of his life. Sadly, that never happened. Released in May 69, Orr has the dubious honor of being Columbia's lowest-selling record. The execs, upon hearing the real sonic case study of pain, didn't know what to make of it, other than being quite sure to not waste any money on its promotion. In fact, the only publicity they did relent on was terribly exploitative magazine blurbs that advertised the record as crazy music. No radio play, not much critical support other than Grill Marcus proclaiming people needed to buy this before it disappeared. No one listened to Greel, as it is said to have sold less than a thousand copies. It was pulled from Columbia's catalog less than a year after its release. Skip Spence struggled. His bandmates in Moby Grape truly seemed to love him and supported him as much as possible. He'd contribute songs, but just wasn't well enough as his addiction to heroin and his mental illness worsened. He became a notorious presence in San Jose. He started hanging out with drug-addled rodents. His pet rat, Oswald, who he'd snort cocaine with. And the Doobie Brothers, who he'd snort cocaine with. (laughs) He would sometimes play in local bands, but never for very long or to much success. There are those sad instances where the addiction got away from him. He once OD'd and was pronounced dead and ended up toe-tagged at the morgue. He suddenly popped up and asked for a glass of water from the coroner, who probably had just evacuated his bowels. Another time, a friend brought Spence to a monastery for a late-night exorcism after he was violently flinging himself against the walls. The priest just told them to get out. Failed reunions, life on the street, or in temporary shelters, and a toll of addiction still never stopped Spence from being a songwriter. Though he never was able to pull everything together, at one point in the 90s he was even asked to contribute a song to The X-Files. What he gave them was a strange spoken word track called Land of the Sun, which was deemed too bizarre for inclusion on the soundtrack. Here in the land of the sun. Here where the river goes in. I don't know why that I should even die, but I will. Orr was eventually rediscovered and heralded by a new generation of artists, spawning scores of covers and tribute albums. Skip's work is impossible to tease out from his history, like all the albums we talk about today. Unfairly relegated to a cautionary tale of counterculture gone wrong, Spence is more than an acid burnout poster boy. He was a supreme talent who explored his pain and shortcomings to give greater artistic meaning to those moments when we lose control. He remains as magnetic in this endeavor as he ever did playing Sykes-scene Golden Boy. Rocky's post-Rusk career was highlighted by the aforementioned Evil One album, and a lot of fairly mediocre but incredibly fun albums as well. He lost his way mentally a few times and was neglected by his mother with whom he was living for many years. She didn't believe in medicine, and because of that, Rocky almost died due to an infection in his mouth. He ended up losing all of his teeth, but was saved by his brother Sumner, who became his legal guardian. Friends came to his aid many times to help him, 
Henry Rollins even paid for those new teeth. Will Sheff from Ockerville River talked Erickson into recording an album together of some of Rocky's classic songs and even included reimaginings of some of the Rusk tunes. It's a wonderful album, highlighted probably by the song Goodbye Sweet Dreams. also played live in the 90s a bit, sometimes backed by fellow Texans and elevator acolytes, the Black Angels. His influence is immense. He helped shape psychedelic music, and some of the finest bands working today pay homage to him every time they pick up their instruments. Rocky Erickson passed away in May of 2019. No cause has ever been given. Daniel Johnston stands as a giant among outsider musicians. His work is undeniably intertwined with him as a person, where so many of Rock's most recognizable art brute figureheads achieve more greatness through what they are rather than what they did. The Shag's inept charm, Jandek's unwavering dedication to his hermetic craft, Tiny Tim's freak show Americana, Wesley Willis's formulaic capitalistic demon expulsion, Johnston was sort of different. He has the context and the content. At his best, his songs were finely assembled pop masterpieces that sported lyrics of devastatingly relatable heartbreak. Taken away from the artist, the songs still shine as brilliantly. The world he built, though certainly has its own rules, is still one where his audience feels comfortable. I'd rather hang out with Joe the Boxer than tangle with my pal Foot Foot. While often saddled with adjectives like childlike and naive, the depth and pain evoked in his songs speak to an age in life where confusion is not born from lack of experience, but rather wisdom of the unfairness and inconsistency intrinsic in our world and in our minds. It is because of this raw talent that Daniel Johnston never succumbed to the pressure of being a symbol for cool that he might have been. His presence, aesthetic, and music certainly had long been used for validation of folk art cred and appreciation for social aberration that's plastered everywhere from Kurt Cobain's shirt to Sonic Youth interviews to Yola Tango records to murals on the walls of Austin. This praise, just as ours, is honest. We all want to connect with this unassuming genius without the life fraught and havoc wreaking instability. Incidentally, it is that push and pull of Johnson's mental health and his artistry, and of his allure and his repulsiveness that make his major label debut, Fun, conceived at a state facility, such a fascinating album. Daniel Johnston's legend is enormous. The passionate and nervous kid working at McDonald's to make money to buy tapes to record songs on and to give to anyone who would take them. His lunch break performance on MTV, 
the unhealthy obsessions with a girl, with the Beatles, with the devil, with fame, the artwork that is pure comic strip id, the guitar, the keyboard, the broken speak and say, and of course his public struggle with bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. There were the very public manifestations, scary and sad, that seemed to erupt during moments of momentum and pressure in Johnston's career. After years of self-releasing tapes, he went to New York to record with Kramer for Shimmy Disc in 1988. He became so obsessed with Satan that he tried to exorcise a woman who jumped out a window just to escape his forceful evangelizing. A couple years later, flying home from the Austin Music Awards with his dad, Johnston threw the plane's keys out the window and attempted to wrestle control of the craft, confident that he was Casper the Friendly Ghost. And there were other bad decisions and episodes, big and small, fighting with police, screaming at terrified people, stalking behavior, disappearing without a trace. He had spent much of his adult life in a cycle of medication, relapse, and hospitalization, which is where he was sitting in 1993 when major labels decided that, hey, this guy is ready for the big time. He needs a deal. Johnston had certainly achieved a sizable and vociferous cult following by this time, and in the wake of Nirvana-rama, major labels were looking to sign just about any indie act that could muster up a passable album. Cobain wearing the high how are you, coupled with the intrigue that Johnston's instability presented, proved to be too much for major labels to handle, and they began a sort of record contract bidding war as Johnston chain-smoked cigarettes in a locked facility. The leading candidate was Electra, who presented the most lucrative multi-album deal to Johnston, as well as several provisions sensitive to his unique needs against the pressure that might impair his well-being. There was a slight problem, however. Actually, four of them. Metallica, who Johnston believed were the spawn of Satan and would hurt him, so he refused Electra's offer and shit-canned his longtime manager, Jeff Tartikoff, who he believed was also possessed for pushing him toward the Lucifer-worshipping yacht metal band's label. Daniel ended up signing with Atlantic instead, which had also offered a slightly less good contract, but not completely exploitative. The record that was to come of these tumultuous circumstances was 1994's Fun. After Johnston was released from the Austin State Hospital, the label pushed their new fragile signee to get right on it. The record was produced lovingly by butthole surfer guitar slaughterer Paul Leary, who also played on the record. He brought along fellow surfer King Coffee to drum, and Willie Nelson's sister Bobby on piano, and Lyle Lovett's cellist, and Wayland's parole officer on tuba, because, you know, why not? Most of Johnston's parts were recorded in his parents' garage. The songsmithing is cutting and honest, even as Johnston sounds his usual shaky self. The quivering vocals, the plaintive guitar, and simplistic keyboards are actually emphasized in the context of the more fuller production. Never slick, Johnston is always center stage, but the sheen is somewhat polarizing among fans. It's a far cry from his lo-fi tape days, but... Uh, near Pink Floyd-level uber-slick hi-fi production. It's like medium-fi, maybe five-eighths-five. 
enough to ensure Johnston was uncomfortable and that the masses wouldn't know what to do with it. So, nail on the head. Thematically, Johnston's distress about the world around him and the time he had had in the hospital to fret upon it had clearly solidified an already anxious history of lyrics. But never without those bits of humanity's goodness that Johnston throws on pedestals when given the chance. Loneliness, emptiness, psychopathy, delusion are all given equal and opposite billing to romance, redemption, beauty, heroism, hope. It's an album that ostensibly bounces from one song to the next about unrequited love, but certainly oozes of a great interior pathos. Take a listen to the first song, Love Wheel, that harkens back to traditional rip-and-grip classic rock, but with a vocal performance of sensitivity that Robert Plant could only conjure in his thoughts of the Shire. It reminds us of another institutional-minded songwriter, Kevin Coyne, in that the overall mood of the song is rutted and disorienting, but still grooves splendidly. Walk into a crowded room Musical accents in the lovely Life in Vain elevate a classic Johnston song into a gorgeous, lovelorn folk tune. If you squint, those perfect violins make it sound like Camper Van Beethoven, but with Lowry's California slacker voice replaced by a bingo parlor Casanova. It's so tough just to be alive When I feel like the living dead I'm giving it up so plain I'm living my life in vain And where am I going to? I gotta really try Try so hard to get by And where am I going to? Lousy Weekend is both a Friday night prediction and a Monday morning lament. And I'll go out on a limb and say that Find Donut in the Sewer should be the official replacement for Cellar Door as the prettiest sounding English phrase. Eat a dick, Tolkien. Talk girl on the street corner Say hey, I'm a lonely loner She looks at me like I'm some sort of crud Fast cars pass me by Everybody cursing me why Find a donut in the sewer Oh, 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 the telephone rings And oh, 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 there's nobody there Probably the song most directly influenced by his hospital stay is Delusion and Confusion. The soft accordion-ish organ just barely holds the entire song together. It's sad and lonely and weird and sounds like it might never end, as I imagine his days at Austin State probably felt. See, see how I cry, ain't no reason 
just clouded by delusion and confusion. But I know for sure you will endure what was what were. You'll find a way to help me. I'm waiting still. Fun ends with the uplifting ode, Rock and Roll EGA, about the transformative power of the music of his youth. The song would be cloying if it wasn't coming from such a well of true spiritedness. It has much the same effect as the Velvet Underground's Rock and Roll, where you actually become convinced that the last best hope for these guys had six strings and a backbeat. Maybe more of a reprieve than absolute salvation, but... We'll take every borrowed minute. If I ever thought that I could be happy Dreams like that always faded away And all the girls already had boyfriends I was alone as lonely could be I laid asleep and turned on the radio Music to me was like a dream By the time Fun was released in fall of 1994, Johnston was once again impatient. Perhaps it was for the best, as, just as or before it, the record was an utter commercial flop. It was always going to be a bit of a tightrope walk, but fun befuddled the grunge kids and sold less than 6,000 copies. Atlantic decided this one who done the one-and-done fun was enough fun to be undone after one. Eat a dick, Seuss. (laughs) Johnston was dropped by Atlantic in 96. He marched on, continuing to release poignant music, making legions of fans, all the while working to manage his mental wellness. Incidentally, the two pillars of Texas Outsider Pop did spend some time together. One time, a mutual acquaintance came into McDonald's and told Daniel that he had worked with Rocky. Johnston, in his usual deificating playfulness, wanted to go meet the man. They became fast pals and would watch horror movies together. Johnston seemed to be a little squeamish at Erickson rewinding the movies three or four times to rewatch the death scenes. He then said that Rocky would go into the back room to work with his insect collection. Like dissections and experiments that brought the bugs back to life sometimes. Like reanimator. (laughs) Texas, right? Yeah, it's a strange tale of friendship, but sweet nonetheless. And it's immortalized in Daniel's song, I Met Rocky Erickson. The little bit Rocky Erickson song, I Walked With the Zombie. I met Rocky Erickson. I met Rocky Erickson I saw him on public access television He said he signed his soul to the devil I heard him on the radio Singing, don't shake me, Lucifer Johnston, who, you know, at that time super religious Talking about how he would hang out with Rocky Erickson And Rocky Erickson just going 
back over and over and over to watch the most graphic, horrible scenes of Last House on the Left. And Johnston's like, boy, I didn't like it, but I really like Rocky. So I watched it with him. It was just (laughs) horrible. (laughs) Of course, there's plenty of other examples of mental institution visits influencing music. Donny Hathaway, James Taylor, Yoko Ono, Sinead O'Connor, Lou Reed. And then there's musicians who are just a bit more exploitative of people in mental institutions. In 1978, the Cramps and another band called the Mutants staged a private show at the Napa State Hospital for a handful of their friends and a couple hundred confused patients that was almost certainly set up to film a movie. The Cramps naturally ripped through their set, which the residents seemed to enjoy for the most part, the absolute lack of inhibition. But you still wince a bit thinking about the violation of privacy. I'm sure they all signed waivers and HIPAA consent forms. But the mental hospital show concept wasn't invented by Lux and Ivy, rather a kid named Herman Poole Blunt, better known to us earthlings as Sun Ra. The idiosyncratic and spacey spiritual jazz pianist booked a gig at a Chicago mental hospital in the late 50s. Ra's manager, Alden Abraham, was fascinated with alternative medicine after reading up on Brazilian scalpel-free surgery. That's how I got my vasectomy. So he decided his Martian client would be perfect for an experimental therapy-through-music group for patients who were suffering with severe afflictions, catatonia, schizophrenia. Sun Ra brought his typical bravado and Afrofuturist wackiness, and apparently the music was quite compelling, as one woman who hadn't spoke or even moved on her own in several years shambled over to his piano and cried out, Do you call that music? Sun Ra took this action as a testament to the healing power of his music and would eventually record an album of sonic psychotherapy in the early 60s called Cosmic Tones for Mental Therapy. Head-shrinking stuff. That's nothing, though, compared to Gulag, the Dutch experimental noise industrial metal outfit that uses recorded screaming of mental institute patients to concoct appalling and flesh-crawling sounds. The self-proclaimed nihilist band, formerly known as Stalag, after Hogan's Heroes, remains anonymous, likely because one of its members is employed at a hospital where the recordings are made under dubious legal and ethical circumstances. And yes, it is as unpleasant and unsettling as it sounds. Brace yourself. And if there are children listening, you may want to skip the podcast ahead about 30 seconds. Of course, there is also the shadowy music from mental institutions that is never released. Music that existed in that bleakest moments of an artist's life that perhaps is something they have no interest in revisiting, 
nor should be re-examined. While some are buried deep behind foreboding walls never to re-enter society, others exist in whispers that intrigue fans hoping for insight into their heroes' downfalls. Jason Molina was one of the most powerful singer-songwriters of his time, with lyrics that took listeners to dangerous depths of despair, only to be rescued by the emotive power of his voice and music. Molina had spent years in and out of facilities in Europe and the States, struggling with alcoholism and depression. He had fallen greatly, and at the time was barely able to play guitar and write music, which had always been his source of survival, financial and mental. In April 2012, Molina checked himself into Fairbanks in Indianapolis. Under constant watch, he was able to stay sober and start pursuing creative activities, including writing what sounds like might have been the strangest record of his career. A comedy record of sorts, with a cappella songs about food, a parody Christmas song, and quite a bit of cheap ukulele. As he moved on from inpatient rehab to assisted therapeutic living apartment, his demons caught up with him and he fell back into drinking. When Chris Swanson, owner of Molina's label, Secretly Canadian, came to visit, Molina, who had been drinking a concoction of Gatorade, Coke, and whiskey, played him the tape that he called, in total self-awareness, the hospital record, and pressed him about releasing it. Swanson, though he thought the tape was funny, knew this was the work of a compromised man and didn't want to seem like he was exploiting a mental health musician storyline in much the same way that pigeonholed Rocky Erickson and Daniel Johnston. He also worried that the scrutiny might be too much, so he half-heartedly commented that maybe it would be something that could be a cassette-only release, hoping Molina would lose interest. The opposite happened as Molina excitedly drew hundreds of abstract tape covers in crayon. The meeting ended positively with Molina giving Swanson a copy of Willa Cather's My Antonia. About a month later, Molina reached out to Swanson, telling him that he didn't want to release the hospital record and that he wanted to work on new material. Within a year, Molina was dead. The tragic last few months of his life left few clues to the final act for a man so incredibly talented but so plagued by a mind that could darkly turn on itself. Of the few artifacts that were left behind was a notebook with song lyrics, drawings, chords, list of beloved albums, and lines from poems. Amongst the scribbled-out album titles, it read, Skip Spence or... Amongst the poetry, the words of Elizabeth Bishop. You don't forgive the silence for not speaking up. No matter how hard we're trying, it's not hard enough. You rise before the lightning to meet it by yourself. You've been tired and a little sick. You've been. Trying to work with 
There is no simple or even meaningful way to discuss the troubling relationship between addiction, insanity, creativity, art, and illumination. And certainly this is not a setting to pontificate or pretend it is all part of a reductionist view of human nature. The terroir of mental hospitals, the pain and the potential within walls of communal struggle and individual battles certainly can leave a presence on a record that is often beautiful, connective, and challenging. Each institution album acts as an important reminder that sometimes the best we have to offer others in a world of chaos and discord is compassion and art. Do you have any of the records we talked about on vinyl? Black Saint and Center Lady, but I don't have fun. You never and... do. <laughs> and I don't have or, which is kind of surprising. I thought you had the evil one. Oh, I do have, I do, yes, I do, I forgot, I do have that. Yep. Okay. So I got a couple of them. I don't have the evil one. I've got a bunch of Rocky Erickson stuff, but not that. I do have a reissue of or. I don't have the Daniel Johnson album or any of his albums, really, for some reason. I do have Black Saint and the Sinner Lady, which we talked about. I can't think of other ones. I've got a lot of Molina. It, it was kind of timely as Molina just had his, what they're calling his last record, Eight Gates, come out like within the past two weeks. I think we both just got it recently. Yeah. And, you know, a, a lot of them, a lot of articles and stuff like that are calling it his last record. And indeed, it is his, you know, last time in a recording studio, I think. But. It's sad to think that there was this this other sort of serious intention for an album that he he put together at a time when it sounded like he could barely pick up a guitar. And it's heartbreaking, but I think it's an important thing to think about the you know, for every ore that gets makes it out or every fun that gets a major label release, there's probably these artists who, you know, it just it it just never materializes. It just stays in their in their hospital rooms. If there's anything that we are kind of trying to get across, and it's something that you and I talked about before even doing this, because I don't think we wanted to sensationalize it. It's important to look at these records in the context of the meaning to the person themselves, not just the art to the to the audience, but what leads a person to do this. I mean, why? Why well, record an album after you get out? And it may just be as simple as Skip Spence wanted a motorcycle so he could leave, so he could go home. And the, his only means of doing that was recording an album. Daniel Johnston, you know, was clearly pushed because he he was obsessed with fame. Or writing songs is just something they did, and they kept doing it. And they had fewer, even fewer outlets, so their output grew even more. It expanded just because of their context. They had nothing else to do. And there always seemed to be hands kind of nudging nudging them to to release. And I don't think anybody was doing that in a evil, you know, for nefarious purposes. I, I think it sounds like most of these people had people who really loved them and believed in them, but they were all also fairly easy targets, I think. Yeah, I think so too. Do you remember... Um, we were in Atlanta, and we saw an original copy of The Evil One. It was expensive. And I remember saying, like, I think you can get that from Light in the Attic. And now the Light in the Attic copy is about that expensive, too. 
Yeah, it's about a hundred bucks. Hopefully, Light in the Attic will have another run. It'll be nice. They do. They tend to do those things. Yeah. All right. After that, are you ready to play a couple songs? Let's do it. My first song is by a uh, tiny American band called the Beach Boys, and it's a song called Johnny Carson. He sits behind his microphone. with Johnny Carson, which is on the album The Beach Boys Love You, which was 77 on uh, Reprise Brother Records. <laughs> so we made it the whole episode without referencing Brian Wilson, so I figured I'd remedy that with my song. Oh, did he have any problems with mental illness? <laughs> <laughs> my mama's little baby loves shorten and shorten. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> so... This is a weird little song, and it's off a weird album, which is a great album. The Beach Boys I Love You was almost entirely written by Brian Wilson. Brian had recently 
rediscovered speed. And he's hanging out with a psychiatrist named Eugene Landy, who was pretty much just along for the ride with Brian. He was kind of a counselor to the stars and just gave Brian a bunch of medicine and lived off his money. So Brian Wilson was writing these fun, kind of fast songs and using a lot of synthesizers. And so they were just pure pop nuggets. And <laughs> and so one day he's sitting at a piano and somebody's talking about Johnny Carson. And he says, I want to write a song about Johnny Carson. And they, everybody kind of laughed. And 20 minutes later, he comes out with the song. <laughs> uh, and you could read into it. It's, you know, maybe some part of it is about the fear he has of having to do media and press for his music and all that. To me, it sounds like he just wanted to write a song about Johnny Carson and had a lot of fun with it. The whole record, The Beach Boys Love You, is a really good record. The later era Beach Boys, you know, late 70s stuff, is a little uneven for me, but they're moments of greatness. But this record in particular is fantastic. It goes really well on a mixtape with Temporary Secretary somewhere else on it. I think they go well together. Oh, yeah. Speaking of another songwriter going mad on speed. All right. My song for this episode is by Songs Ohio, and it is called Soul. I know you. Whoa. 
I know what it's like And it's worth this misfortune Right, that was Soul by Songs Ohio, who really was Jason Molina. And that was originally released in 1995 on Palace Records. And I have a copy of that. I think I got it around that time. And it's also on a collection called Journey On Collected Singles, which was part of a Record Store Day release in 2014. That is awesome, too. That one's very expensive, though. We talked a little bit about Jason Molina. And... He actually got started while at Oberlin College, just playing music on his own. His his nickname there was Sparky, by the way. Very strange. <laughs> and somehow, a tape of his made its way to Will Oldham. And Will Oldham, two years later, after kind of becoming pen pals with Molina, released this single. And it was on his Palace Records, which was a subsidiary of Drag City. And from there, these two guys named Swanson, they're brothers, who formed Secretly Canadian and Songs Ohio became their kind of flagship, the first artist they signed and probably the most important mm-hmm. artist they'll, they have ever had or will ever have, no matter how great they are or continue to be. They were absolutely blown away with him, as was I. I remember hearing him for the first time was on that single. And that's the B-side. The single itself from 95 is called Nor Cease Thou Never Now. And that is not a song title. <laughs> the A-side is Freedom Part 2 and the B-side is Soul. It's 
a great song. It's five and a half minutes. It sounds perfect, even though it was one of his very first things ever put on vinyl. He never had really a, a down moment as far as his recordings went. They were always pretty stellar. Yeah. If you've listened to our show enough that you've you've probably know that we're pretty giant Jason Molina fans and that his songs have a command over my emotions that not many artists have. Pretty amazing talent. All right. Well, I think that about wraps it up. We want to say thank you to our podcast network, Pantheon. Lots of fantastic music podcasts there. Go check out some shows. If you like us, there's bunches of other shows that will have stuff that you'd probably enjoy. So please check out Pantheon. And we always, as always, we want to encourage you to, if you have any extra scratch, buy some records, go to a local record store or buy some music from a band or, you know, just do, do something to, to help out musicians. That's always important to us. So encourage you to do that. And follow us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram, and our handle on both of those is Highway Hi-Fi Pod. Find us on Facebook. Email us at Podcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. It's really fun hearing from anybody who has listened to a show that, that wants to send us a message every time. It's just sort of a thrill that somebody out there is interested in what we're saying and doing, and it just it feels pretty great. All right. And uh, we will see you next time. As pointless as whispering into Vincent Van Gogh's ear.